Welcome to episode 10 of Strange Exiles. If you followed us from uh, the start of the show, thank you very much for sticking with us. If you're new, welcome. You actually picked a pretty good place to start. This is a podcast about ideas, identity and ideology. And on this month's episode, I speak to one of Scotland's most insightful and articulate journalists and commentators, Darren McGarvey. I got to know Darren in 2014 in the run-up to Scotland's referendum on independence. He was already a prolific activist, speechmaker and writer, but I knew him as Loki, a veteran of the underground Scottish hip-hop scene. We worked together on the release of his prescient, dystopian concept album, Government Issue Music Protest, which anticipated many of the cultural and political currents in the dark waters of today's polarised culture wars discourse, with acid humour and sophisticated wordplay. In 2018, Darren would go on to publish his first book, Poverty Safari, Understanding the Anger of Britain's Underclasses, with the Scottish imprint Luath Press. The searing honesty and unparalleled insights he was able to present about inequality struck a cultural chord far beyond Scotland, and Darren went on to win the Orwell Prize for political writing. Now, with two series and counting of his BBC show Class Wars under his belt, and with high-profile appearances interviewed by the likes of Owen Jones and Russell Brand, and even appearing as a panellist on Question Time, Darren is now what's known in Scotland as a well-kent face. Poverty Safari is now an international bestseller, and Darren's piercing analysis of class and culture continues to evolve. With a much-anticipated second book on the way soon, he kindly took some time out of a very busy schedule to talk to us about his work, his podcast Darren Speaks, and his thoughts on a current political moment. Sometimes I forget you're a journalist. <laughs> I did come prepared. <laughs> uh, thank you for agreeing to do the show, man. So the first question I wanted to ask, um, Poverty Safari came out and made a huge impact. You know, it's been around the world. It's been translated into dozens of languages. Um, do you think that it changed the discussion around class? Not just like in a global scale necessarily, but even on a, on a British level, do you think it changed anything? It's it's a hard thing for me to say, so I can only base it on the feedback that I get from um, people who have read the book and the demographics that have read the book. So in terms of working class people, I get messages from people saying that the book inspired them to go to university, inspired them to stop drinking or confront other mental health problems, um, but also the, the overriding message is that they, they, they finally have something that helped them cultivate an interest in reading, which is a big uh, compliment because I did structure the book in such a way as to try and account for people who have developed a belief that reading in books is not really for them. Um, and that's kind of... So that's that demographic. But then also, I think, because of the... <laughs> The tone of the book, what I tried to do was not pull any punches, but also write kind of as charitably as possible so as to to invite people into the conversation. Because as much as I have my own beliefs, and some of them are still pretty radical, I recognise that in the current framework, then, you know, out with a kind of revolution, then there has to be a consensus about certain issues and sometimes the key to consensus is not necessarily how effectively you deploy facts 
but in how you carry a message. You know, often it's not the messenger, it's, it's, often it's not the message, it's the messenger. And what I realised was, you know, coming from the left, that we have a bit of a reputation for maybe being sometimes a bit strident and a bit angry and um, not without cause, obviously. But a, a, a book gives you the certain space and time to calm down a bit and think things through. And uh, so I think the, the impact as well as what the book was about was also... A lot of people turn their head and were like, oh, that's what the left is about. All right, OK. That's what a left-wing person can also be about. Because um, often we're, we're framed in media as just absolute loonies and head cases, you know, and it's a big problem. Mm, interesting, man. Yeah, I know what you mean about, the uh, like, a book giving you more of time to focus, you know. Like, you're quite active on Twitter, and so, and so much of our culture now is this reactive thing where you want to try and react first. So if you can unpack it in a longer form. So do you feel that you're kind of, um, the more you write, the more you're getting into that longer form stuff? Because I know you still write short pieces for the record in other places. Yeah, the book is, is uh, that format, while obviously the challenges that come with it, you're in isolation most of the time. You can't really explain what the book's about until it's done. So you don't get a lot of feedback about things. Um, but I think, in terms of developing a kind of emotional temperament that is conducive to advancing an argument while keeping people broadly on side, even if they disagree, it is important. I do believe it is important. I mean, there's a t everybody has an issue where they lose their shit. But I think, you know, often, it's, and I write about this in the second book, on the left, I think sometimes we're so immersed in our culture, in our leftist culture, which we acquire at youth, in our youth. So even in adulthood, lefties carry this sort of youthful idealism with them and that black and white way of thinking. And it's one of the only things that you don't mature out of on the left. <laughs> and I think, you know, what, what the book does is, is, is you've always got firmly in your mind, who do I want to read this? You know, so can I modify this argument somewhat or can I, can I represent an opposing point of view more charitably in some way? And I guess it is kind of emotionally manipulative, but that's how you advance politics, <laughs> isn't it? It's the it's art not, of persuasion. Ah, it's not facts. People aren't moved by facts. So um, I, I think, and, and in the second book, I think I refine that process. But then again, in the second book also, when I look back at the first book, I can see, I can see how the changes in my lifestyle that were coming into play prior to its publication, moving further away from poverty, getting this legitimacy and culture that I'd never enjoyed before. And also my influences broadening and my social media curating differently. I can see how that had a moderating effect on aspects of my politics or aspects of how I, I, I presented them. And I think that, um, you know, going into the second book, I became more aware of that. You know, I, 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 I can't pretend to be working class anymore. I can't pretend to be as radical as I was before. It just wouldn't sit right with people. But I think that, I think that, I, I think that maybe I went a bit soft on some things in the first book. Um, that I'll, I'll be certainly looking to rectify that in the second one. It's interesting. There's a few people now who've kind of written books which are coming from the left-wing political perspective but are trying to critique or engage with 
the aspects of left politics which maybe aren't working so well now. And it struck me that like when you wrote Poverty Safari, it was a very different political moment. It was kind of peak Corbynism in a way. And certainly that like online left sphere felt like it had like a real chance of, if not taking power, then certainly influencing it. What do you what do you think's different now? A couple of things are pretty different. One is Corbynism provided, I think, a kind of what at the time must have felt like a welcome distraction from this schism within the left between class politics and so-called identity politics. Um, so when, when after the, the election where Corbyn did a bit better than what he was forecast to do, um, the focus became on getting him into Downing Street. And, and while that was always going to be a tall order, it did concentrate the campaigning aspect of it a little more. But unfortunately, I think what happened was that just led to a postponement of dealing with some difficult conflicts that are always due to happen on the left, including just delineating between, well, you know, what is... Has the left got to be all things to all people, or can the left be about class politics and just unite people under that theme? Does the left also have to accommodate um, uh, intersectionality in the very different specific ways that, you know, you hear about and, and I think now we see on the left people are able to act more confidently and saying what aspects of that intersectional analysis align with class politics, anti-racism obviously, equality, sexual equality, gender equality, but then at the same time these other aspects of intersectionality which have been fast-tracked by corporate forces and liberal forces which are, 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 are deployed ultimately to, to, to create a simulation that changes occurring, when really it's just a new facade is being fitted onto the same uh, structures as before. And I'm not saying that that isn't progress, you know. I'm sure that there are people out there, when they see themselves represented in a Nike advert or they see themselves represented in a uh, Costa Cup, I'm sure that that does elicit a feeling of comfort and inclusion, which is important. So I don't dismiss that. But um, you don't see uh, you don't see workers' rights being advertised in the same way by Starbucks yeah. or Amazon, and and I think that that's because class politics really cuts to the core of the fundamental nature of structural inequality in a way that some of these more cultural uh, cultural issues don't. Mm. And so that the, the left, I think, is now getting to a point where I mean, if you read Jacobin. Um, you see regular critiques of identity politics surfacing on there now. Some of them stronger than others. But that back back at the time you're talking about John Corbynism, the left I mean a lot of a lot of people backed away from it. They backed away from immigration, they backed away from identity politics. And unfortunately, while some people underplay the impact that had, it did leave a bit of a vacuum. Um, because we weren't speaking to those issues and a lot of people were becoming frustrated. They were unaware uh, not aware of the broader forces shaping the culture were social media, right wing, multi billionaires, funding demagogues and all this. They're just thinking, who's this person saying I'm racist? Who's this person saying I'm this? What are you talking about? And uh, there were class dynamics there that we could have got in on and I think we just backed away because it was a real cooling effect uh, where a lot of the principles on the left were suddenly brought into tension. Uh, you know, around issues like immigration, for example. But I think people are, are moving more confidently in that arena now and we'll see how things play out. I'd agree. I think, you know, the, the ground has shifted a little bit. But it's, it, I think it's really interesting, like, how much of this operates in the realm of, like, illusion 
or the virtual, you know, particularly online. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, of just the fact that there are so many debates about whether or not identity politics and class politics in some way cancel each other out or get in each other's way, or the debate of like, you know, uh, the, these kind of false debates that are brought up like statue gate and this, this idea of like some sort of moral panic around getting rid of the traces of empire. A lot of that's whipped up and created sometimes by journalists. Um, do you think that, I mean, I guess the question is, is the, is the new book a little bit about that um, in terms of the ways in which class politics and this kind of new uh, cultural politics interact? Is that something you're exploring? Yes, and part one of the book, I deal very much with structural a aspects of inequality. So what are the, what are the mechanisms by which uh, our current system authenticates itself? It authenticates itself by reproducing inequality. And it does this through education, the labour market, housing, um, and also health. So these are these are uh, the, this is where you see you know the exams fiasco for example, the exam algorithm was really a sort of of, of an, gave us an insight into what the education system is. The education system serves the labour market, so it's it's about providing a level of education which uh, is not necessarily about what are in the interests of people going to school. There's a certain amount of jobs, some of them are high paid, some of them are low paid, and they all need to be filled. And so an algorithm makes sure that the right people get the right jobs. And that system is repeated in health. You have the inverse care law in health, which means that there's, a, there's, a, this, there's an inverse relationship between how health resources are deployed and what the level of need is. So people who come from more affluent backgrounds get more time with a doctor, even though they have less health problems than poorer people. And, and you know when you look at it in that structural way, then you don't really need to get any moralising. It's a numbers game. You're looking at it objectively and saying, here is how inequality is maintained. The question is, whose who's interest is that serve and how do we change it? But the, the overall unifying theme of the book is proximity. It was this idea of social distance that really brought into focus for me what I was actually writing about. The distance between classes, the distance between politicians and the people affected by their policies. And so we apply proximity to the structural issues in part one of the book, and then in part two of the book, I apply the theme of proximity to the, the kind of the main political ideologies, conservatism, um, uh, the left. And when I talk about the left in the book, I mean the radical left. I'm specifically talking about the left, not liberals, not the Guardian. So activists more than politicians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, obviously centrism. Um, which while obviously kind of politically is a bit marginalised just now, is still the prevailing cultural orthodoxy. And then there's also a chapter about populism as well. So you apply proximity to each of these, you say, right, what the Conservatives misunderstand? They misunderstand, and they misunderstand that in order to be Conservative you have to have something to conserve. And so their whole value system runs aground where uh, where people don't have anything. And so then they start speaking in the language of values to shore up support. Uh, on the left, you have a bit of a disconnect, I think, sometimes as well. There's class dynamics there. A lot of the lefties that are prominent in media aren't working class, and so they, they rub people up the wrong way because they have this kind of middle-class look about them and sound about them. And and uh, and and the working-class activists and campaigners who are so consumed with the campaigning on the ground, they're the ones that would endear people more to the left. Uh, but currently, you know, we've got... Novara Media and 
and I like Owen Jones, right? I like Owen Jones. But Owen Jones fits a profile, right? And to some extent, I'm sure I do now too. Um, whereas if you had, you know, the bottom class campaigners there, there would be a stronger sense of identification because these activists have been very effective on the ground at dealing with grievances that lead to a rise in the far right, but they don't have good public relations. They leave that to Grace Blakely, you know, and <laughs> it sort of all just comes crashing down. So proximity is applied in, in, in all these different dimensions, and while obviously that the, the, there'll be a lot of familiar ground covered, I think the way that I've packaged it as an argument, the whole thing about distance, distance being a problem that our democracy has not really developed a strategy to account for. I mean, we have all these different methods of dealing with all of these recurring problems all the time, but we've never really factored in what happens when you have people in charge of things that they don't viscerally understand. What happens is they, they, they steer society in a direction which serves their interests while telling themselves that that's in everyone's interests and it's a big problem. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, that's a really interesting way to attack those different ideologies. Yeah, so there's a couple of things you said there which are really interesting. You, you talked about conservatism having nothing to conserve. And there does seem to be that mad panic among the right and, and among the party and government to try and bring back that like nostalgic illusion of empire, benevolent empire. Um, but at the same time, like Mark Fisher wrote about zombie ideologies, and conservatism very, very much feels like a, a zombie ideology. You know, it's, it's, it's very much um, kind of asset stripping public services, uh, handing out contracts in, in kind of crony capitalism, uh, very much being led by the market and tax breaks for, you know, like um, people trying to hide their money here from Russian tax scams or whatever the, the, the new scandal is. There's one every couple of weeks. So in a sense, if you want to kind of be against conservatism, it's not the ideas of conservatism you're against. It's, it's about the way that conservatism has been betrayed by capital, right? Yeah. You also need to make sure that you take time to kind of delineate the space between conservatism and its traditional form which is, has certain legitimate ideas and concepts about how a society and community and family and law and order should be structured. What we have now is a kind of, there's a, a capture of conservatism, which obviously began with Margaret Thatcher, who, 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 who kind of rose to prominence as a woman in politics from a, perhaps a humbler background than most get to Downing Street, but really she... She ascended because of her commitment to the emerging neoliberal ideology. That's why she was put in place the way that she was. She kind of completely remade what conservatism meant in Britain. That's the most radical thing that's happened in Britain, you know, since the creation of the welfare state. And I know that's a, it's a painful thing to say, but it's so true. And, and so, you know, but conservative values um, in terms of, you know, the importance of family or law and order, these aren't necessarily any of themselves bad, bad things. Um, but when you have, a, a, when you have a, a conservative politician talking about personal responsibility with no insight into what they are commanding people to take responsibility for, uh, that's where it starts to make less and less sense. Um, and, and, and I think that, that, that there are subtleties to, to aspects of poverty and structural inequality that, that someone who hasn't experienced them 
is not going to understand. And that's why you had, you know, premium rate phone lines to contact the benefit service. That's why you have a culture where it's um, apparently you can't be poor if you own a phone, but you can't get access to benefits without the internet. That, that's the sort of contradictions that are produced when uh, people who have only a theoretical conception of poverty are in charge of, of social policy formation around the issue. But, but you know, there are, there are similar problems across the political spectrum. That, that There's a kind of I think about it a bit like, I don't know if this would be construed now as kind of racism or whatever, Chinese whispers, you know the kind of game Chinese whispers, so it starts off, somebody says something, it goes down the line and then by the time it gets to the end of the line, uh, it's, it's, it means something else entirely. So in a, in a system of democracy, of representative democracy, where a grievance takes so long to make it up the democratic structure and then come back down as a policy dealing with it, by the time it gets to the bottom, not only is the problem it was meant to deal with evolved, but just that process of it moving up and down the structure means it has evolved and mutated and been cut with so many different agendas and understandings that it just barely doesn't translate into the real world a lot of the time. And it's, it's you know, that's, that's the issue when you don't have a kind of, uh, you don't have a, a, something in place that, that that deals with that social distance, you know, like a second chamber of parliament, which is comprised of not hereditary peers, but, you know, civic society and people with lived experience who get to discuss the issues and that being something that informs policy as well as what a political agenda is or what the constraints of the electoral cycle are. Um, without that, without that, you don't really see real problems addressed. And it's not like these things don't exist, like there are examples of citizens' assemblies at the local level in Britain and at the international level in different countries. And if they're given the power to affect policy, then you're quite right, it drives change from the bottom up. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, what you mentioned in terms of the, the algorithm and the, the school exam scandal. You talked about how, you know, education is kind of a social conditioning tool to produce good workers. I talked about that a little bit in episode nine. Um, we were talking about Byung-Chul uh, Han and Mark Fisher, and um, they, were, they were talking about the w this exact way that um, essentially like mental health as well is, is, a, is a thing where in Britain, you're treated when you're in crisis, and then as soon as you're well enough, the system spits you back out. So there's no like idea of long-term care. Like if your mental health fails, the state will pick you up. But if um, you're uh, then out of crisis, there's no kind of 
Um, the threshold for crisis is very high. And the same is true of, of poverty systems. You know, it's only when you've already fallen through the gaps that you then become dependent on this help offered by the state. Um, so what I wanted to talk about was really like your podcast. In that, you've kind of taken a slightly different approach from the books in that you're talking about mental health, you're talking about like your own well-being. Do you think it's a different way of reaching people? Like almost if the book is talking about it from a political perspective, is this you speaking from a personal perspective about these things? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of, obviously I, I, I believe in, in uh, the, the analysis of, of, of history being the kind of struggle between social classes and that collectivist conception of society but also do believe there's a role for the individual. Mm. And I think sometimes on the left we underemphasise the individual role because we only deal with it in terms of how it's defined by conservatives. Um, so the podcast is a vehicle for me really more to kind of share my experience in the hope that other people will, will, will um, get a bit of insight into little practical things that we can do every day to, to unburden ourselves from certain things. Um, and 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 I certainly don't uh, I don't do that I don't I don't do that under the impression that by taking individual responsibility or that self-efficacy is, is somewhere going to mitigate all of the structural problems around us. But whatever point in history a person has happened to be born, there are aspects of their struggle that are rooted in structural issues, and then there are things that they have been able to do to mitigate that difficulty within their own context of their own lives and um, and and so I think the podcast kind of provided me a, a place to express that side of things because you know I am I, um, when someone decides to join a trade union that's an act of self-will right so it registers as collective action but if you become an organizer or a campaigner you're taking responsibility for yourself right what your contribution to your community is. So these are acts of self-will in a sense. Um, also, someone with a mental health, not, not necessarily a even a clinical mental health problem, I, I tend not to comment on that stuff because th there's a clinical basis for that that I'm unqualified to talk about. But just in terms of the ebb and flow of managing your mental health day to day, um, when you decide that there's a recurring problem that you have to confront and that there might be some aspect of your own attitudes or core beliefs or lifestyle at play, it really doesn't matter how much help is laid on for you. You have to make a decision to act. You can't be compelled to act. This is one of the reasons why the drug crisis is so problematic. There's a misalignment between when someone asks for help and when they get it. When they ask for help, they're ready. The window is open. By the time the help comes, they've been induced into the fantasy again. There is a choice and that they're just doing what they want to do. Not that they're suffering from a hopeless condition of mind and body. And and so really, you know, I, I, I think that there has to be emphasis. And then also, part of attracting people to class politics or, or, or the left is also speaking to them about issues that they're, they're affected by on a day-to-day. -day. So it becomes a kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say recruitment tool, but it's a sort of gateway into broader ideas to begin talking about your own experience, you know? What's your experience in school? What's your experience of, 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 of your language and how you felt people judging you for your accent? And a lot of people on the left think, seem to think the issues I deal with are peripheral, you know? Um, but talking about things like accent and all that, I mean, that's been class politics has been diffused through 
education, cultural arts institutions in Scotland right now? Because it's all been smuggled into schools through this talking about accents or talking about these things. And that becomes a way for people to become interested because they're like, they can relate to that. It's more tangible to them than talking about Marx or talking about Gramsci or, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a way in. And um, again, I, I, I think the, the, the role of an individual well overstated by the right in this neoliberal context. Uh, and, and, and very much kind of put in, injected with steroids in the kind of Jordan Peterson era. Uh, at the same time, I cannot deny, see the amount of, see the amount of young guys and young women that I've met who, 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 cite, who cite that guy as a pivotal moment in them getting their fucking shit together. And I don't have the heart to sit them down and say anything, and part of me's like, well, why should I? If that's worked for them, it's worked for them. So there is an appetite out there for people who want to exert a wee bit more control within their lives and it's just about getting it, pitching it at the right level. Yeah. It's almost like people think of it as like, it's either pragmatism or idealism. And maybe that's to do with that polarised way in which we debate things now. But, you know, you can be idealistic about what's possible in the world um, and, and what might be possible. And then you still have to live according to pragmatic ideas. So is there a sense that that kind of emphasis on the personal you know it doesn't have to mean oh well no systemic factors are at play it's just that like you say at this moment in history you are where you are um it's interesting you talked about accents i was going to ask you about that already that was like one aspect of um the, the most recent season of the tv show that i thought was so fascinating was this talk about accents um i can't remember the name of the guy that you got on he was the son of a um like a, was he a son of a politician he was a kind of more uh, hugo rifkind rifkind yeah so i thought that was just so fascinating because a lot of the things that he was saying about the way that he comes across and feels he is apprehended by the world i was like that matches my experience completely i moved here from England when I was 10, you know, from a fairly well-to-do middle-class background. So there's that sense in Scottish culture where like middle-class people almost try to downplay that. You talked a little bit about the Glasgow uni accent and how people will come here and kind of take on aspects of that. Um, so do, you, it seems like that kind of, that code switching is a really great metaphor for class, isn't it? Do you think it's um, as present everywhere as it is in Scotland, like this awareness of how class and accent interact, is that a UK thing? Only for people who move between different spheres. It's, it's, it's only at the intersection of, of, of two different socioeconomic experiences where people will feel a kind of, there'll be a rub of feel between two, two ways of speaking, which are encoded with two different value systems, cultures and experiences. Um, so you could have a person from a middle class background and a working class background who are, are, are broadly in agreement politically about lots of things but will somehow get bogged down and resentful over an interaction because they have a different sense of urgency or they have a different sense of what constitutes vulgarity or what constitutes humour or what is a priority and what isn't a priority and uh, and 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 um, I one of the things about accent for me that's most interesting is that every dialect in Britain arises naturally from a, a specific geographical, cultural context, except the most trusted accent, which is the least spoken and is, arises from institutional conditioning. So it's fascinating that 
if you speak in this accent, it can conceal how idiotic you are, you know? Whereas if you speak in a regional accent, it can conceal how intelligent and insightful you are. And, 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 and so the accent, it, as well as someone communicating what they're literally saying, it also discharges a kind of affectation which grants the speaker a kind of automatic trustworthiness and an automatic legitimacy uh, that is so deeply ingrained in all of us now that um, that that you know we, we kind of we're we're sort of sadomasochistically thrilled by the sight of someone like Boris Johnson in power. I mean, it's a, it's an affront to some of our, of our sensibilities, but then we get a kind of kick out of just the, the pornography of it. It's just like look at this idiot, you know, and uh, and if anyone understands code switching, it's him. You know, I mean, that might only be, that may be the only area where he's he's, he's genuinely sophisticated socially, because um, he he does have appeal in working class communities because he, he he appears to be so rough around the edges and so vulgar. But I mean that that's a feature of, of the populist demagogue figure anyway, isn't it? It's a remarkable performance, and there is the sense that it's a performance, but it's knowing, and so people accept that it's a performance. You know. You, you almost feel like politicians like that could get away with anything. Yeah, and these figures, these one of the things when we talk about populism, populism is always discussed in terms of how it disrupts social democracy, the threat it represents to the status quo. It's discussed, particularly right-wing populism, which differs from the left because it's, it's not organised around socio-economic grievances, it's organised around cultural issues, immigration. But no one really addresses the fact that the reason populism was successful for a period there, or at least it, it sort of swelled in a big surge recently, was it, it always speaks to a pretty fundamental truth, which is then used as a Trojan horse to smuggle in all the other stuff. And that's the thing that, that, that the liberal democracy is incapable of dealing with, and that's why liberal democracy becomes vulnerable to it, because they get Steve Bannon on because they see him as a freak show, as a rate-winning freak show. They put Trump on TV. They don't perceive the threat. They don't realise they're in the Death Star and there's a fundamental weakness right at the heart of it, which is, let's just make space for everyone to have a, come on and talk. And so then, because of the highly moderated, sanitised discourse in social democracies at me media level, when someone like Bannon comes on, who's not particularly honest, who's not particularly bright, is, or someone like Nigel Farage, this one fundamental truth that they speak Society is governed by elites who are operating against your interests as the people. People are so affected by that because they don't hear it. And then they become so endeared to this person that they then become susceptible to the succession of hyperboles and lies and radioactive uh, concepts of nationhood and nativism. And then that's them, they're on board with everything. But it's, it's, it's never analysed at that level. It's never understood that there is a fundamental truth at the heart of that populism, which is the system's rigged. And who's going to fucking say it isn't, you know?
you're aware that with your position now where you know you're 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 finding yourself in situations like the corridors of power if you're going to speak to somebody in a political position or in newsrooms or in tv studios um do you find yourself still having to do some of that code switching or are you kind of like more and more resistant to it like what's changing for you with that interesting so um i don't have to code switch as much now because when you are when you get your stamp of legitimacy people orientate around you so the, the dynamics change if you speak to somebody like tom hunter he doesn't modify how he speaks because he's rich right so that's his kind of that's his legitimacy he's a wealthy person and people organize themselves around him and and so whatever kind of stamp of legitimacy that you get um, you, you, you sort of you develop an air of confidence and being more yourself because you start to think right, I've been accepted for what I am or who I am and and um, the code switching uh, it's not as much of an issue like I, I, I'm not self-conscious about how I dress or anything anymore I used to be uh, but I was self-conscious of how I dressed in the hip-hop scene I mean I used to look at people like Mo Steph and Pharaoh Monge for how I should dress. So you would have the fedora and you would have the blazer. And and you'd be walking into the hip hop scene and people would just be like, Why are you dressed like Frankie Boyle, do you know what I mean? Or with a beard and the glasses and I thought I was cool, do you know what I mean? So you, you run into all sorts of problems. What I have noticed though, and and uh, this is something that I'm really I'm struggling with just now, is I'm now kind of being subsumed into the system in ways I mean even just when you have the kind of success that I had with the book your whole economic situation changes so suddenly you have to get an accountant so suddenly then you have to set up a business and uh, you you become funneled into your economic interests change you have children you start thinking about house prices and schools for your kids to go to and it happens so incrementally you don't realise you're changing and so you you have to sometimes kind of reconnect with what are your beliefs because it can become very easy to just start to write off your more radical beliefs to a sort of a time where you didn't understand the world or, 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 or immaturity or idealism when really what you're doing is you're compromising because there's a new carrot being dangled in front of you. But also for me, culturally, and I noticed this at this gig last night where I was like among the community, um, I've been moving around in middle class spheres, particularly where I kind of will be treated with a certain level of reverence, um, and I'll be on there to talk about things like community. But actually, I've become quite remote from community. I find it hard sometimes in a community setting to relate to what's going on, because when people ask what you're up to, I find it hard to tell them what I'm up to. I find that I. I I start thinking I'm going to sound like I'm trying to be a big shot I, I, or, or, or I'll have a problem that won't register to them as a problem because they would love to be in my position and so you can understand why people move start to move spheres because as your interests change your problems change and you need an outlet to discuss them and you need advice about them and you can't get it from the community where uh, where people are poor or people are struggling because um, their problems are different but then you start noticing also the social media algorithm changes you know so I, I noticed it with the Afghanistan stuff 
I was kind of absorbed in mainstream news, watching that the collapse of Afghanistan unfold. And it was a speech by an MP in the Houses of Parliament during the debate, which was quite moving. And he was a former serviceman and he was criticising Biden. And, you know, it spoke to me on a deeper level. I was like, all right, I forget sometimes that the soldier, the role of the soldier is more complicated than some of the analysis on the left, you know, suggests sometimes when we talk about imperialism. And so I tweeted something kind of impulsively about that, about kind of misty-eyed, and uh, got a lot, got got some quite harsh pushback for it, you know. And I went away and thought about it, and I was like, ah, do you know what? As much as some of that was a bit harsh, what they said to me, it made me realise my algorithm is all mainstream journalists, liberal commentators, um, think tanks, and if I'm not careful, that becomes my reality. You know, that'd be so I forget the war on terror was a sham. I forget it was about projecting American power around the world in Britain or Tony Blair assessed that he had no real choice but to align with America as the sole superpower. And that that was that was the ho- that was the cart before the horse of the war on terror. And it's easy to forget that. Sometimes you need to sit down and watch low key talking about it to remember, you know, what the fuck is going on. And it's difficult. It's difficult because it conflict within me is so fundamental and the temptations you know the, t- the, the conflict between being true to myself and my community but then the vanity of being seen to be true to my community and also the way that the system pushes you over there in this other direction of affluence and legitimacy and uh, that fear of falling back into poverty it's fucking hard you can see how people slip into denial about why they change I guess that's the challenge, is keeping these things in balance. Like, that's what life's about, is balance, isn't it? Like, you can't solve that problem. You know what it reminds me of is um, the movie Network. You ever see that? Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he starts out being angry and criticizing the system, and that resonates with people, and so they absorb that back in, and he realizes he's being sold as a solution to this anger yeah. instead of a critic of it. Same with, um, is it 10 million credits, the, the, the Black Mirror episode? Oh, so this is great. He, it's exactly the same story as Network. Everybody lives in these little cubes that are essentially like virtual reality machines. And you earn food credits by cycling on a bike, playing a, a Nintendo game. And um, this guy gets, you know, really angry with it and um, decides he's going to uh, break the whole thing. So he gets to the, the top of the kind of charts of the kind of like X Factor style game, which is like the, the peak of this gaming society, and then threatens to cut his throat on air. And then they give him a show where every week he delivers a rant with a blade to his neck, you know. Um, so it's that thing, I mean, like, in philosophy terms, like Guy Debord wrote about this in terms of situationism and the spectacle, is that the spectacle reabsorbs anything back into itself that can threaten the spectacle. Um, so I guess that's not a solvable problem for you as an individual, is it? It's, it's just what happens. Do you think you can resist the pull? Or is that just like where your fear resides? It's, part of it also is my own insecurity, right? So there is a kind of, there is an individualist aspect to it, which is I follow a lot of people on the radical left. So I'm constantly being reminded of what the call to action is, but then I'm sitting in a different space where 
how I would move in relation to certain issues and there's different demands and different expectations. Um, and, and while you're absolutely right to say it's not for me as an individual to look at it, at the same time that can become a cop-out um, for, for um, playing fast and loose with your integrity. And um, I guess on a certain kind of meta level, if my journey can serve as anything apart from what I'm literally talking about in terms of poverty, then there are lessons there as well for anybody who wants to come on this path, you know, because I'm kind of at an in-between point just now where a lot of what my book is about and a lot of what I'm really interested in communicating right now is things that I think I'm going to forget soon, you know, or things that I think I'm going to underplay soon. You know, because if it, not say the next book comes out, who knows how it'll do? Maybe it'll bomb. Maybe it'll do well. Whatever. If my life continues on this trajectory, then I'll continue on this trajectory. And while certainly in the liberal space, I might come across as a bit radical and a bit rough around the edges. Um, I mean, real radical and rough around the edges people aren't in the liberal space. You know. Someone said to me the other day, as it was Celtic against fascism, it was a Twitter account, right? Guy was trolling me really heavily, right? He was being pretty personal. I contacted, we contacted each other and agreed that he should cut it out. Because um, I don't take shit off Tories and I'm not going to take it off lefties either. But I told him in the message, I said, there's a kernel of truth in what you're saying. It's just nested in so much vitriol that I can't engage with you in good faith. You're right to say that uh, my take on Afghanistan in relation to that speech was a bit misty-eyed. And it's a red flag, obviously, for anti-imperialists to any kind of generosity towards the armed forces. But, but um, there was a kernel of truth, which is um, a lot of what I present to the public, I'm at the core of it, at the centre of it, it's about me in a sense. Um, and so some people can kind of, can, can, can say that really, that this is all just about my narcissism, or this is just, a, it's about self-importance or self-involvement. And there is a kernel of truth in that, but I understand really that if anyone finds me personally interesting, I can use that as a gateway to bring other things in. And to be honest, since a teen, I was conditioned to tell my story like a party trick. 
by kind of left-leaning charities and organisations and media, and that's then how I've been sold to the public. So it's it's part of the gig for me now, um, and that's whether I like it or not. You know, sometimes I have to remind people on TV or whatever. I'm like, well, I'm not talking about my personal experience of that because I want to have some personal stuff for myself. It's not all just there to be commodified. But I, I take the criticism. I take the criticism. It's just. I challenge anybody to go on the path I went on and still maintain the level of self-awareness that I have. Because if you got the opportunities that I got, you'd have fucking took them. And you would have been less self-aware on the journey as I have. Um, because cause, um, it's, it's fucking... You don't plan for your life to turn out in certain ways. You just roll with the punches. And then other people decide what the narrative is or what it's about, you know? I mean, it seems to me as well, though, that like anybody who's a public figure or an author at the moment also feels that duty to kind of be online, to talk about themselves, to talk about the big events that come up. Like you see it after any tragedy, like, you know, everybody from like Mark Ruffalo to, uh, uh, you know, your local Z-list celebrity has to make a statement yeah. on something. Yeah. But at the same time, you were talking about like how as a, as a writer of books, that gives you space to unpack ideas. I guess my question is, would you ever give yourself permission to quit Twitter, to quit being a public figure? Like now that you have that method of like, you could you know give a talk at a book festival, you could publish a book, you could publish an article. Would you give yourself permission to walk away from that public figure aspect of it? Yeah, I certainly have considered uh, making moves in that direction. I think it's about, in this day and age, you have to maintain a certain level of communication um, the question is what are the platforms that you use to do that you know so if you can develop your own platform you know a website or something of that nature because um, definitely the impulsivity aspect of it is an issue for me sometimes and then also um, uh, the, the thing I think sometimes in the public figure space I'm guilty of this at times. Because we have a platform to say what, whatever we want or whatever we think, we start to think that we're generalists in terms of what's going on in the world, you know, because everyone has a hot take on everything. And um, the truth is we're not. You, most people are in the public space to write about two specific issues, but then they develop a following and they start to become trusted in a number of other areas. And sometimes we can veer off of our, our uh, out of our wheelhouse um, under the kind of belief that because we've got cultivated an audience which largely trusts us then this qualifies us to start speaking about things that other people are more specialised to talk about and uh, you know I've, I've had mixed results in this regard in terms of some of the issues that I've touched over the years um, and starting to kind of uh, you know develop the necessary humility and also understand the more you stick to what you know, the less chance there is of getting pushed back on things. Because you're not going to betray your ignorance on an issue uh, if, if you stick to what you're not ignorant about. But social media does sometimes, it creates a hubris within you where you're like, well, he said that and he said that, and she said that, I must have an opinion on this. It's a bit like just walking into a room randomly and just announcing what you think about something, um, even though no one's asked you what you think 
And it's a sense where it almost becomes a form of compelled speech. Like, if I don't say something about this, then people are going to think that I don't care. Or and, 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 and to be honest, I don't expect everybody to join my anti-poverty crusade, and I've been on that crusade for more than half my life. So this idea that we have to be at the front fighting every fight, every day, is not true. You know, focus on what your fight is and, uh, and your allies will come. And not everybody can be all things to all movements. Yeah, no, I think you're right there. I think you're right there. I mean, one thing I've always admired about your writing and your thinking and, and you know, when you've come on things like Question Time to talk about um, poverty or other issues is that you challenge your own ideas and you're not afraid to take a position on something that contradicts an earlier position and say, I've learned something that changes this. So, I mean, one of the first issues that kind of you became very publicly engaged with was Scottish independence. Um, and I think you have changed, uh, like, what you think about that and the way you approach it a few times. I wonder if, like, just for the final five minutes or so of the show, we could talk a little bit about where you think Scotland is in terms of independence um, and, what, and what your feelings are on it now. Well, first of all, I'm not necessarily an active campaigner on the Scottish independence movement anymore, and that was just because I became disillusioned shortly before the referendum about basically what was ultimately the SNP capture of the entire movement, except for the, the radical contingent of it, which was used as a kind of battering ram to get out there and incentivise working class people to join the fight. Um, you know, having you know worked with National Collective and different things that I've done, I just got into some bruising conflicts where I realised actually this is this is something that drapes itself in in the kind of uh, the veil of artistic expression and freedom, but it's not really up. It doesn't align with me. Um, and then you know, for someone who's been actively engaged on issues around poverty, child poverty, the drug death issue health inequalities or whatever it's difficult it's difficult to, to maintain a position which is actively pro-independence while pretty much using every means I have to attack the Scottish government on a number of issues every day and so in a sense you have to de-emphasise one of your positions surely just to for, the, for your existence to make sense you know because um I, I wasn't one of these indie first people, you know. I don't think I ever was, and uh, and so while I still, well, I still think the democratic case for Scottish independence is probably the soundest aspect of the argument thus far, um, and the, the whole proximity issue that we discussed earlier, I think, applies also. I think you know. I like my government to feel my presence. I like to reach out and touch them. I, I think the Scottish government is a bit more susceptible to the pressure of the Scottish population than Westminster is to the British population. And so that's a positive. But then also, I mean, you can't deny the, the sort of corporate capture of the SNP. And obviously you get the Green Party now, which will provide a wee bit of a... Uh, will provide a wee bit of a... Uh, Distraction from that, you know, a cover for that. Yeah, a bit of greenwashing. But it'll come. It'll be. It'll come at an expense. Um, but I, I, I think if if they fired the starting gun on the campaign, I would get out there. I would get out there. But also, I don't. I think that they've made a pig's arse of the economic arguments because they want to. They want to sell it 
under this neoliberal way of looking at everything and under that way of looking at everything it doesn't make sense the argument doesn't make sense um, but I'm not qualified on the economics of it anyway uh, but I, w- I would um, I would say that the independence movement has suffered from not having a focal point you know because there is this kind of cautionary approach that Sturgeon's got it's very important for Sturgeon to be seen as legitimate within the UK norms and the neoliberal norms and that's a fair enough strategy you know and she's got to keep the middle classes on board and um, and that kind of gradualist approach is, 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 is perfectly reasonable for her to take but I have been surprised by the level of, of um, the, the level to which the culture war has created additional folds and strains within the indie movement and, you know, without the prospect of a referendum, that's only going to get worse. You know, it's only going to get worse. I think you're right, man. So to bring it full circle, um, you know, having operated in the space as an activist, as an advocate, as a spokesperson, you obviously have some ideas in this direction. What do you think is the single best thing that we could do in this country, specifically Scotland, to combat poverty? Good question. Um, I mean, admittedly, we don't possess some of the the powers required, maybe, to deal with the more deep-seated structural issues. Um, we have to have an honest conversation about wealth distribution, and uh, and 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 without that, everything else is sort of tokenism. That's not to say. Things like safe consumption rooms or opening more rehabs is, is not going to help. But the, these 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 uh, systems come online uh, to preserve the status quo, to make it look more respectable. Um, we're, we're, we're dealing with a situation where the whole system is tipped in favour of people who already have things, who already have assets, who already have a say. And... Um, the, the electoral orthodoxy is to get them on board and then do what you can do within the minimal constraints of that. But I think that you could get out there and just also just tell the truth. You know, I would like a politician or like someone like Susan Aitken, council leader, to come on and say, instead of trying to sell library closures as, uh, first of all, not actually being closures, come on the telly and just say, here is the choice I have in an economic system where our councils have been defunded for a decade, our assets have been stripped and sold off to private developers. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's pathetic that I have to come here and tell you the library is being closed and moved to a cupboard in Scottsdale Sports Centre. And it's pathetic that I have to come and pretend that it's not a closure. Could you at least admire my honesty in saying we live in a very dark time for public services? And as an elected official, I at least have an obligation just to be honest with you about that. And you work with me in terms of what can we do to make the best of this situation. And, uh, you know, I would admire a politician for that kind of honesty. Because it's a desperate, desperate time for for, um, a politician to have any kind of wriggle room to do anything except sell off more assets and cut more services. Um, But without that wealth distribution discussion I think at the heart of it I just don't see how you don't see how you get to a real truthful conversation 
about what the nature of our society really entails. I like that though. The solution is, is, is more talk and more honesty. And I think we could do with a healthy dose of that, not just in Scotland's political culture, but in, in the political culture of the world. And I hope we get it, man. I hope we get it. Listen, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a great hour of conversation. My pleasure, Bram. Good to see you. Ah, excellent. Good stuff. That was quality, man. That was Darren Loki McGarvey. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Um, I'd like to add some thanks to Oren Moore, where we recorded this interview. Uh, it was kind of atmospheric with the chatter in the background. I think we might do that again. If you are in Glasgow this weekend, Darren is speaking at the protest outside the COP26 conference and is sure to give a rousing speech. Um, look out for highlights of that online. I'm sure they'll appear afterwards if you can't make the protest yourself. And look out for more Class Wars from Darren on BBC and a new book from him coming very soon as well. I'm excited to read it. Our next guest is author Mike Watson author of the book The Meaning of Mark Fisher on Zero Books. It's a fascinating insight into how the writing and thoughts of Walter Benjamin and the other members of the Frankfurt School might be used to understand today's meme culture and left online discourse. I'm looking forward to sharing that one with you. For now, this has been Strange Exiles. Thanks for listening. Take care of each other.